So I have a question. What are you devoted to in your life? That's the question that we're faced in our text for this morning. What are you truly devoted to? What in your life makes you just crazy? Just desiring more. Is it a bike, a car, for the younger ones, girlfriend, boyfriend, a hobby, sports, hunting, fishing? Maybe your job. Maybe your retirement account. Or maybe it's the praise of other people. What are you devoted to? What are the things you want so badly that you make tremendous sacrifices in other areas of your life in order to get them? And not only that, but where are you willing to take the greatest risk in life in order to get? This is what each of us needs to wrestle with. And if we evaluate our lives and we look at the way we spend our time and our money, and if we examine our hearts and look honestly at what we most desire, what would be said of you that you desire most? Can it truly be said that you are devoted to Jesus Christ? I hope so. But what does it mean to be devoted to him? Can a person be deceived into thinking that they're devoted to Christ when in fact they have invented a Christ that is not the Christ of, a, of the Bible? Well, for one thing, we must first understand that the, the more a person comes to know Christ, the more they hear the gospel, there is one of two reactions that will generally occur. It's very difficult to remain neutral when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ. Some will behold his glory, experience his grace, and then are drawn to him by the sovereign work of God and salvation. They hunger for his word and worship him in spirit and truth. At the same time, this polarizing Christ has the opposite effect on other people. They listen to him, to his gospel. They observe his life, but instead of being drawn to him, they're offended by him. And these individuals are repulsed by the message, and therefore they're driven away in anger. But in their anger of Christ and the Bible, they come with a different image of who they believe Christ is. They come to a Christ who has the long flowing hair. And he always carries lambs on his shoulders. And you know what he does that is so neat? He just praises you so much so that your self-esteem is not ruined. But that's not the Jesus that you find in the pages of Scripture. The Jesus that is in the page of Scripture is very polarizing. Everyone who encounters this Jesus is either being drawn closer and closer to him or be, being repelled away from him. He is the most polarizing figure in the history of the world. The message of the Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us 
who are being saved. It is the power of God. You see, no one can come close to Christ and remain unchanged. Men will either crown him or crucify him. They will either hail him or they'll nail him. There is no middle ground. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Matthew 10, 34-36 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of their own household. You see, this is precisely what's taken place here in Mark chapter 14. The more the chief priests and scribes were exposed to Christ, the more they heard his words, the more they observed his lifestyle, the more they were offended by him, and the more hateful and violent they became toward him. At the same time, there were others who heard his words and believed his teachings. And those who believed expressed great love and gratitude and devotion to him. They all saw the same Christ. They all heard the same words, but reacted vastly different. Even today, as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed in truth, as the gospel of God for salvation and man is declared Sunday after Sunday, the message will have a regenerating, sanctifying effect on some, but others will walk away. They heard the same words, but they remained in unbelief. And so this morning, and God willing, next Lord's Day, we'll look at the polarizing effect of the gospel's message. The difference between the response of Mary and the response of Judas. So with that, let's go ahead and turn to our text. It's found in Mark chapter 14, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. Starting with verse 1. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. 
She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever this gospel is preached to in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. This text is really heartbreaking. Jesus is about to give up his life to save sinners, and no one seems to care. In the final hours of Christ's life, he's surrounded by many people who hated him. And then when one woman wanted to do something nice for him, even his own disciples verbally attacked, attacked her. So again, as we read verse 1, it says, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. And so here we learn that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was just two days away. Mark only records the Passover, which is the one in which Jesus gave up his life as a ransom for many. The Passover was one of three main pilgrim festivals for which the Jewish people would travel to Jerusalem to attend their religious services. The, Pass the Passover, the, tabernac the Tabernacles, and Pentecost were the big three festivals, and they drew thousands of people and perhaps even millions the Passover commemorated the theme of redemption, specifically the, de the deliverance God gave Israel from the Egyptians. It specifically was designed to cause them to remember the tenth plague in which the angel of death killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, but then passed over the homes of the Hebrews on which the blood of the Passover lamb had been smeared on the doorposts. This festival clearly pointed to redemption via applied blood. It would be the applied blood of Jesus Christ that would save any sinner who would believe in him. The festival of unleavened bread began with the Passover and continued for seven days during the time which leaven was removed from the homes and only unleavened bread was eaten. In this instance, leaven signified sin. So the removal of leaven after the deliverance was an illustration of being pure after one had been delivered. These two Jewish festivals, Passover and Unleavened Bread, were just two days away, and Jerusalem was buzzing. The city was preparing for big crowds of people. And during the festivals, thousands of people would come. Hordes of people and animals would fill the streets. The sights and the smells of the city would change during that time. And this was somewhat of a tense time for these religious leaders, especially for the police. The chance of riots breaking out increased dramatically. That always happens when there's big crowds. And so the Jewish leaders feared that if a riot broke out, the Romans would put a stop to their livelihood. They would put a stop to these religious festivals. And the Jewish leaders, because of that, didn't want any trouble. 
And according to verse 1, the chief priests and scribes were trying to figure out how to secretly arrest and kill Jesus. They wanted him out of the way. If they want, anyone was going to set off a riot, it might be him. And so we see that word trickery there, and the Greek word is doulos. And it indicates that they were trying to figure out a way to forcibly grab him by deceit, by some crafty way. They were trying to figure out how they could lure him into the trap so that they could overtake him. And this little idea of deceit carries some significance. Jesus had earlier spoken of it when he said it was deceit and such evil coming out of the heart of the individual that defiles the individual. It's not what's put in it. It's not what you eat that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart. And one of those issues was the deceit and hatred and animosity that ends in murder. And so these religious leaders, those who were trained in the word of God, had their hearts full of deceit and murder. And they were desiring to do away with the Savior. They had Jesus Christ right there in their city, right there in their temple, and they're trying to figure out how they can uh, find a time to get him out of the way. Why did they want to kill Christ? Because he was a threat to their whole religious system. He was teaching grace, and they were controlled uh, they controlled people by their system of religious works, but Jesus was trying to potentially take them out of business. So rather than promoting that people need to believe in him and be saved from sin, they would rather have people go to hell as long as they had their power and their money. And so we find the problem in verse 2. But they said, not during the, the feast, lest there be an uproar of people. Not only did they fear Rome taking away the temple, and their nation, but also they knew the people would riot if they openly killed Christ without a cause. This would bring also the wrath of Rome upon them and upon the, the soldiers as they tried to quell the, the citizens. Because if you remember, most of these people that were coming were Galileans. And Galileans were some pretty tough hombres. They, they used to fish and hunt and mountain life and survival. And the religious leaders knew that they would be no match for them. And so the leaders had pretty much decided not to act until after the, the festival. But you know, as always, plans change when you find someone who you think is going to do it for you. And that's when they were approached by Judas. Caiaphas, the high priest, had been appointed by the Romans. And so he was in office from AD 18 to 36. And it was his decision to sacrifice Christ. And that had to take place, he figured, in order to preserve Rome's favor. And he just thought the Sanhedrin the other Sanhedrin were just ignorant of what could happen. And so in offering his direction and killing Christ, 
he would argue that the ends justified the means. He stated that if a person were regarded as worthless, then that person could be sacrificed for the common good and even handed over to the hostile Gentiles. Otherwise, such an act would be contrary to Jewish principles. And so this was a crafty manner that they decided to utilize in defending their plan to kill him. And so Caiaphas authorized the killing of Jesus, not realizing that actually God the Father was directing him to sacrifice Jesus for the sins of the world. And so these two verses in Mark set the stage for the rest of the chapter. And we've now taken a step closer to the cross. At the beginning of chapter 11, you often hear that we enter into the Passion Week, the week leading up to Jesus' death on Friday and then resurrection on Sunday. And that word passion is actually from the Latin word passio. And it means to suffer. That's what passion means. And so now it's Wednesday, and we find ourselves in the midst of the final events leading up to Jesus' imminent death. And from here on out, Jesus is going to be betrayed, abandoned, accused, rejected, tortured, and killed. But first, we have this wonderful account of this woman who anoints Jesus in preparation for his burial. Of all the people who will come against Jesus or desert him, here's this woman who has wholehearted devotion to him. And Mark uses an interesting structure as he goes through his gospel. He often takes and uses a literary device known as Markin sandwich, where he takes something that seems like, you know, why is it fit in there? And then when you study it, you go, oh, I get it. It's almost like two pieces of bread with, with uh, something in the middle. And that's what Mark is doing here, because it seems to not really flow like you would think it would. And that's the technical term that actually scholars came up with. It's a, a story sandwiched within another story. And so here the story of Jesus being anointed at Bethany is sandwiched between the story of the plot to kill Jesus. So what's the significance of this? Well, it seems that Mark wanted to highlight for us two radically different acts of devotion. The woman is radically devoted to Christ and shows her devotion in the most poignant and wonderful way. After this, next week, God willing, we'll see where Judas and the chief priests are radically devoted to things other than Jesus. Things which Jesus threatens and therefore they are scheming in order to take him out and and bring about his death. And so in verse 3 of our text, we continue by reading, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Here we see that while the religious leaders are plotting 
as to how they're going to kill Jesus, we see this shift where, and it goes to where Jesus is. And verse 3 informs us that Jesus was in Bethany, a city located just a couple miles out of Jerusalem on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. He's actually in the home of Simon the leper. I don't know about you. I don't know that I'd be like to be referred to as, you know, Brendan the leper. But you see, um, this, this man, we know that he was healed because under Old Testament law, a leper was unclean and not able to host a dinner party. And Scripture doesn't expressly say that Jesus healed him. But there's three things that are evident. First, a leper under Mosaic law wouldn't be allowed to mingle with clean society, much less dine with them, unless they were healed. The second thing is this was almost an incurable disease, meaning that only God could have healed him. Evidently, Simon was healed, or Jesus and the other guests wouldn't be there. And thirdly, since only God could have healed it, and Jesus is God in the flesh, it makes sense that Jesus was the one who healed him. Now, Simon was called the leper to distinguish him from other Simons because it was a common Hebrew name. Just as Matthew. Matthew is often called Matthew the tax collector. Even though he was no longer a tax collector, he was a disciple of the Lord. Now, we don't know much about Simon the leper. And the only way we know who this woman is, who comes into this party, was because of John's account. John 12, he identifies the woman as Mary. Not Mary, the mother of the Lord, but Mary, the, uh, the sister of Martha. And Martha and Mary being the sisters of Lazarus, who had just been raised from the dead. But you see, as they sat at the dining room, the, t the table there, and they would have been reclining, not sitting in chairs. They would have been reclining at this lower table. Mary comes with this alabaster, alabaster flax, uh, flask of very expensive spikenard. And she broke the bottle seal and poured it over his head. For a woman to interrupt men as they ate would have breached Jewish etiquette. And not only that, she did this extravagant activity of breaking an alabaster flask and pouring this perfume on Jesus. A Bible commentator Albert Barnes remarks, alabaster is a species of marble distinguished, from, uh, distinguished for being light and of a be beautiful white color, almost transparent. And it was used by the ancients for the purpose of preserving various kinds of oil in it. So this alabaster flask was beautiful. The bottle itself would have been very costly. It would have been made from Egyptian marble, which obviously would have had to have been uh, import, imported. But you see the perfume inside was extremely expensive as well. And that would have been imported from India. 
and it's from an herb called nard, which the perfume was extracted from. So this was likely a family heirloom. And there's only one reason that a family would have something like this. Because for the most part, they were common laborers. They were not wealthy people. So this was something passed down through generations. This was uh, this bottle of expensive perfume is being saved. And maybe it's being saved for a time of famine where they were able to sell that and take care of the, the family's ne um, needs on that. And this was the family's fortune. It not only had financial value, but also there must have been some sentimental value as well. Something that was passed down generally generationally. John 12.3 says that it was a Roman pound. That would have been the equivalent of about 12 ounces. And again, the perfume inside wasn't uh, uh, medicinal, but rather just a perfume. Pure nard from the Orient. It had a very pleasant odor. The NASB says the woman came with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Now, remember, the bottle itself was designed in such a way that it would have a very narrow, skinny neck, and then it would go wider at the bottom. And this was so that you could pour it out, and you could get a drop at a time. That way you wouldn't waste this very expensive oil that was in it. Mary wasn't concerned about that. It says she broke the neck of the bottle and poured it out on Jesus in total devotion. Mark says she poured it all over his head, but Matthew says over his whole body. John says that she wiped his feet with her hair, meaning that the oil went all the way from his head to his toes. The entire bottle, 12 ounces, poured out on Jesus in an instant because the bottle was broken and it was able to be poured out freely. This bottle was gone, never to be used again. The perfume was gone. And all that was left is this strong fragrance in this house. And this would have been a reminder to her siblings and to the disciples that she had just poured out her life savings on Jesus. She had literally spent a fortune on her Lord. And the response was anything but kind. Notice verse 4. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? And then verse 5, for it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. That word indignant in verse 4 is the word agonatao. And it means to be moved with indignation, to be very, very displeased. And then in verse 5, we see another word. And it's the, the Greek word, embryatomai. And it means to uh, something with horses where they flare their nostrils in anger, sort of snorting and pop, uh, pawing the ground. 
this, this, was, this was anger. And it has the idea of murmuring and even blaming. And so this was not just a mild rebuke. This was anger. This was absolute outrage from all those who were present. And they viewed this as inappropriate excess. Why were they so indignant? Well, verse 5 gives their argument. For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. You see, during the, the celebration of Passover, it was customary to give large donations of money to the poor. And so, what I'd like you to do is turn with me to John chapter 12. And I've already alluded to this, but I want you to see from John's account who was leading this charge. John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Here it says, But one of his disciples, guess who? Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Judas was behind this. He was a thief. It is even written in the pages of Scripture. Judas was making an argument and everyone is following it, him in this argument. 300 denarii, that's a lot of money. Why are you doing this? You see, one denarii was one day's wage for a common laborer. Let me tell you how it worked in the ancient world. You didn't receive a paycheck at the end of two weeks. You worked one day and you received the money at the end of the day. Then guess what you did? You went to the market, and what did you buy? Not extravagant clothing, not a new pair of Nikes, or even extravagant perfume. You bought food for your family to eat for that day. So the point is this. Judas is trying to make an argument. Hey guys, I've done all the calculations if you would have sold this bottle of perfume, we could have had 300 families be fed for a day. 300 denarii. 300 days of wages. This keeper of the money box, this treasurer who would betray Jesus, clouds his argument with an interest in giving the money to the poor. But that really wasn't the issue. The issue was the money was going down the drain. This was money he could have siphoned off if it had been sold. So we're already starting to see the heart of Judas. Now back to our text in verse 6. It says, but Jesus said, let her 
alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. And so when the murmuring began, our Lord spoke up immediately to take the side of the one who was intent on worshiping him. Worship was the very thing that stirred the devil here. Sure, the perfume was costly, but Mary so often worshiped at his feet. She wanted to honor him with all she had. Did she perceive that he was about to give his life for sinners? I think maybe she did. Maybe she did. Because Jesus says, it says, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. It appears that she had more spiritual perception than anyone else in the room. She knew that it was probably going to be the last time to do good for him. It was a deed of faith. And remember who it is who gives the gift of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the works not of works, lest any should boast. Verse 6, where Jesus says, let her alone. It's, it's the, the Greek word, aphaemi. And it means, don't hinder her. Give it up, folks. Let her alone. Let go of it. And then the word trouble that we see there is the word kopos. And it means to cause grief or sorrow. This is amazing. He stood by her and he stands by us no matter the trial. And I love this. Jesus is about to stand trial with no one standing with him. And he is going to be nailed to a cross and experience the wrath of his father on behalf of all the elect. And yet, he will not abandon this woman to her accusers. Jesus then answered, uh, questions their motives. Why do you trouble her? And perhaps he was looking at Judas at this point. Asking, is this, are the poor really what you're concerned about? Jesus spoke truth, truth to her detractors. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. But then in verse 7, Jesus says, For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. So here Jesus uh, clearly had regard for the poor. That's not the point. Because if you remember... The rich young ruler, he says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, there's one thing you, that you lack. Sell all you have and give to the poor. Does that get you into heaven? No. But it shows the devotion. This man had a devotion to his treasures, not a devotion to Christ. And you remember, he had pity on the poor widow who put her two mites into the treasury. 
Jesus hung out with poor people. He healed poor people, even when others dismissed the poor. But here in verse 7, he quotes the first part of Deuteronomy 15, 11. And there it says, For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and, to, and your needy in your land. In other words, within God's scheme of sovereignty, there's always going to be a place for poor people in the world. Why? It gives us a motive and reason for service. If there's always poor people, there will always be needs of serving people. And that's sort of built into the fabric of the world we live in. Jesus is not arguing against giving to the poor. He's keeping the main thing the main thing. He's not getting into a debate whether or not you should have sold or fed the poor. That's not the issue. His actions can speak for themselves. He's not debating them. The main thing is the main thing, and the main thing is this. The poor will always be with them. But here's what you need to focus on, Jesus is saying. My life is slipping away. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be dead. And aren't your eyes open to the reality that is going to come upon me? And then in verse 8, Jesus clarifies why what Mary did was so beautiful by saying she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. I love this expression. She has done what she could. That's all Jesus asks us to do. Do whatever we can. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You know, you might think, how in the world can I do anything? I mean, for that matter, how can I be a pastor and preacher? I don't have the intelligence of some MacArthur or Sproul or some of these others. It doesn't matter. I'm not called to be them. I'm called to be what he has given me to be. And so I need to pour out. It's not a matter of you have to be the best in the field. You need to be the best that you can by his grace. He has given you gifts. Use them. Use them up. I once preached a sermon Wear out or rust out. Folks, do you want to live your life to where when you cross that finish line, you are hardly winded, or do you want to cross that finish line just falling across it spent? You need to think about that. And apparently Mary had been listening far, far better to the teaching of Jesus and his predictions about death than even the disciples. Remember back in one account, Luke gives, gives this. Mary sat at the feet of the Lord listening to the teaching. And she was criticized there as well. Martha, her sister, said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. 
And on that occasion, Jesus came to Mary's defense again and said, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You see, Mary has used, it was used to being criticized. So perhaps Mary says, this is my last time to show my devotion to Jesus. Simon the leper is showing gratitude. Lazarus is showing gratitude. I want to show my gratitude. I want to show my devotion as well. So she might have thought, I'll anoint his body because no one else is going to anoint it. Perhaps she had that on her mind. We don't really know. She didn't want him to die any more of an undignified death that he was going to die and be crucified as a common criminal on the cross. But here's the point. Jesus viewed this as symbolic of his anointing for burial. Jesus used this opportunity to say, you may see this as extravagant and a waste, but this is a beautiful thing. She's anointing my body because I'm getting ready to die. You know, all the parables point to the same basic attitude. We, we are all to live in a way that we will please the master when he returns. That's what it's all reduced down to. We are to care for his interest while he's away. That should be our priority. Everything else should revolve around that. What it is that Christ wants done. In Matthew 25, we see the wise virgins ordered their life activities around that which would best serve the bridegroom. The faithful investors also found in, in Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents. They ordered their lives around which would provide the best profit for the master. Those who were cast into darkness, those who didn't make the cut in these parables, aren't mentioned to here to have done hideous crimes. They may have been fine world citizens. They weren't cast out for doing terrible external sins. But we need to pay attention here. All they were doing is living distracted lives. Lives that did not have Christ first and foremost. They were living for the here and now. They weren't considering the return of the Master. And if they were, they were not aiming at pleasing Him when He returns. We really need to think about this. Believers live changed lives. Not perfect, by any means. But over time, change is absolutely visible. But just to keep things into perspective, we cannot please Christ if our sin has not been forgiven. We cannot please Christ in the state of enmity. We cannot earn right standing with God through any effort of our own. 
our sin problem has to be taken care of before we can even have a relationship with God. And so once we've received Christ's work on the cross as a covering of our sin, we now have the glorious opportunity to please God. Now we can do the things that have positive, positive effect on Christ. We can imagine him telling us at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. That isn't fiction. If you're a believer and you've done all you could, he will actually say that one day. And along with this, we can't forget there's another side to this. In every one of these parables, God endorsed Endorsement is given on the activities that are done. We learn in James that faith without works is dead. And we learn throughout the New Testament that good works are things that come out of a Christian. It's sort of like songs out of songbirds. It just happens. It will happen and it has to happen. When the resurrected power of Christ is put in a person, something new has to come out of that person. It just has to. We've already read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but listen to what verse 10 says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we are created for good works and God has created these good works we will do before he created us, that pretty much tells us that every true Christian will do good works. They aren't saved by doing them. We're saved by the grace of God which contains none of our own merit. Not at all. But we will be empowered and driven to do good works. Now that we have seen that if we are in Christ, our good works can please Christ, we all have reason to do good works. Just think if you're, you work for a man who says, if you work for 10 years, I'll give you a million dollars a year if you make 10 years how hard would you work especially if you didn't put a penny toward it that's the position we're in because Christ bodily was bodily resurrected and his his ascension was seen by a lot of people we know he is coming back. His word tells us that. And when he does, he will reward those who are living by waiting. Do you believe that? If you do, if you know that you can do things today that will please him when he returns, why not do everything you can? Why not invest every talent for his service? Why not regard every aspect of your life in regard to how you can please our Lord Jesus Christ? We have been given every reason to serve Christ in this life. 
So look at your life this morning. What is your life for? I mean, really. What are we trying to please? Where does most of our effort go? Where does our best effort go? What would you do if at the end of the day you would stand before Christ? What would you do if you knew that he was going to show up today? Could you have done things to which he would say, well done? I am pleased that you serve me today. What would you do differently? This is the whole mindset that we're talking about. This is living by waiting. Is that what we're doing? Is that what you're doing? Is that what I'm doing? You know, as I was preparing, I, I found a quote from A.W. Tozer. And it's, it's really quite lengthy, but Tozer put it in such a beautiful way. I'm going to read it. This is quite lengthy, but I hope that you find it profitable. Here's what Tozer says. The longing to see Christ that burned in the breast of those first Christians seems to have burned itself out. All we have left are the ashes. It is precisely the yearning and the fainting for the return of Christ that has distinguished the personal hope from the theological one. Mere acquaintance with correct doctrine is a poor substitute for Christ. And familiarity with the New Testament eschatology will never take place of a love-inflamed desire to look upon his face. If the tender yearning is gone from the Advent hope today, there must be a reason for it, and I think I know what it is or what they are, for a, there are a number of them. One is simply that popular fundamentalist theology has emphasized the utility of the cross rather than the beauty of the one who died on it. The saved man's relation to Christ has been made contractual instead of personal. The work of Christ has been stressed until it has eclipsed the person of Christ. Substitution has been allowed to supersede identification. What he did for me seems to be more important than who he is to me. Redemption is seen as an across-the-counter transaction which we accept, and the whole thing lacks emotional content. We must follow someone very much to stay awake and long for his coming, and that may explain the absence of power in the advent of hope, even among those who still believe in it. Tozer continues, another reason for the absence of real yearning for Christ's return is that Christians are so comfortable in this world that they have little desire to leave it. For those leaders who have set pace of religion 
and determine its content and quality, Christianity has become of late remarkably lucrative. Because of that, the streets of gold do not have too great of an appeal for those who so easily pile up gold and silver in the service of the Lord here on earth. We all want to reserve the hope of heaven as a kind of insurance against the day of death. But as long as we are healthy and comfortable, why exchange a familiar good for something about which we totally know little, very little? Some reasons, the carnal mind, and so subtly that we are scarcely aware of it. Tozer continues, Again, in these times, religion has become jolly good fun right here in this present world. And what's the hurry about heaven anyway? Christianity, contrary to what some have thought, is another and higher form of an entertainment. Christ has done all the suffering. He has shed all the tears and carried all the crosses. We have but to enjoy the benefits of his heartbreak in the form of religious pleasures molded after the world, but carried on in the name of Christ. So say the same people who claim to believe in Christ's second coming. History reveals that times of suffering for the church have been times of looking upward. Tribulation has always sobered God's people and encouraged them to look for and yearn after the return of their, of their Lord. Our present preoccupation with this world may be warning a bitter day to come. God will wean us from the earth some way the easy way if possible, the hard way if necessary. It's up to, it's up to you, end quote. I think Tozer's right. He said that over 70 years ago. So the, answer, the question is, are we going to live by waiting? Are you willing to do a be beautiful thing like Mary did? Mary was expressing a great gratitude for the fact that Jesus was going to die for her sins. She wanted to do something beautiful for him before he died. She was the only person in the room who truly believed and understood that what he said would happen to him was about to happen. She was literally preparing his body for burial. And when you think of that word burial, you must also think of death. And when you think of death and burial, with regard to Jesus Christ, you also must think of resurrection. Those three things go together. They're bound together in the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the gospel. And do you remember how the apostle put it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4? He says, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so burial is always affixed to death on the one side and resurrection on the other. It's kind of like the idea of conversion. When you read the book of Acts about repentance, it says 
repentance therefore and return um, repent therefore and re return that your sins may be forgiven it's not just repentance Jesus is talking about because true repentance always means turning away from sin and turning to Christ in faith repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin they always go together and that's the same way it is with burial death burial and resurrection and so you might might ask the question what about Mary did she really understand these things Jesus seems to think so in verse 9 of our text it says assuredly I say to you wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world what this woman has done will be told as memorial to her I mean that's amazing to me Jesus says as people proclaim the gospel they will tell the story of this woman Mary anointing Jesus so therefore Mary forever reminds us through her sacrificial deed how devoted she was to Christ and how devoted we should be to Jesus the one who became poor so that we might become rich just imagine that scene as that perfume lingered in the home constant reminder on the one hand of the witness of what they viewed as waste and on the other hand the smell of the perfume was a reminder to Jesus a sweet smelling aroma for the ages something that the world would never forget a reminder to us our devotion to Christ it involved not holding back anything it involved not turning back I mean wouldn't you agree that Mary did better than some of the other disciples who scattered like sheep when Jesus was arrested Mary's legacy was one of anointing and Jesus says wherever this gospel is preached he already said in chapter 13 you're going to proclaim the gospel to all the world now he says whenever you proclaim this gospel to the world you're never going to forget you're going to tell others about what Mary did right now you're being critical but you're going to tell others what she did you're going to understand the significance of what she did the significance of my death for our purposes we learn that Mary's extravagant gratitude was heavenly something that we should emulate first of all it it involved heavenly devotion I, I mean think about it breaking the flask that that's emblematic of total devotion the the flask and the oil pouring out was as a living testament and that's what the New Testament tells us if you please turn to Romans 12 Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 in verse 1 it says I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable to God 
which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to know God's will for your life? Don't go on a cosmic Easter egg hunt and look under every rock. Look at the word of God and it will tell you. The witness, the witnesses of this event, they viewed this as an extravagant waste. Jesus viewed it as an extravagant worship. It causes us to ask, do we do what we can in extravagant worship? Mary's devotion was heavenly. It came from the heart. It wasn't just words. It involved action. I mean, words don't cost you anything. Mary's course of action cost her much. She wasn't full of hot air. This was real and sacrificial Christian devotion. She didn't need to break the flask. She could have poured out drop by drop and just dabbed it on Jesus, and it probably would be sufficient to give a fragrance. She didn't do what the flask was designed to do. She broke it, and she poured it out. That reminds us of Psalm 23. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And that refreshing aroma in the room was a reminder of the sweet-smelling service that she had for her Lord. We could say that the fragrance of the perfume filled the ages as well. We're remembering a poor, trembling sinner, a creature of flesh and blood like us, because Jesus told us we would. What is done, done for him in true faith, which he alone gives to his children, is never wasted. She has done what she could. How marvelous are his ways. May he inspire us and enable us to do what we can. And we can only do that by his marvelous grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Be pleased to open our hearts to give us grace and faith that we might, each one of us, young, old, truly embrace Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Grant that we would be the case, that would be the case so that when we live in your providence, in your timing. We're not going to let this life pass into the next without doing all we can here so that we might also remember what Mary did and the, and the loving sacrifice and devoted worship Lord, help us to do the same.
And we pray that you would grant this in the name of our most precious, glorious, and majestic Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.